great offers and a great podcast? What a day. Thank you, sponsors. We appreciate it. This is an ICRT podcast. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Sean Su. It's great to be back. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And, of course, always great to be on the show. And tonight we'll be discussing the best and worst of 2022's news stories from here in Taiwan. And I've asked my two guests to compile their lists of their top stories in various categories to come on today's show. And they are prepared, or they tell me they're prepared, although some of them might be the same, but we'll just have to see. So, beginning with you, Sean, I mean, let's begin with a top political story of 2022, according to you. Well, can it be anything else other than the elections? You know, I mean, I think, I think you know, obviously, the, the, this year's elections are definitely going to be the, the top political story. Um, uh, unfortunately, I think, uh, I feel like the angles around that are more important. Like Donovan Smith penned a great article uh, talking about how, um, you know, China would take advantage of the, uh, of the outcome of the elections, trying to mix local elections to make that into some sort of referendum on Taiwan's future or, or you know, wanting to to be annexed. Uh, but I also found it interesting that we have another uh, Jiang in power again. Um, you know, as we all know, the Taipei mayorship is often seen as a stepping stone to become to the presidency. So, you know, what the repercussions of that might bring. And what about other things to do with the election? Oh, because there was a lot of stink about organized crime and people <laughs> being elected with ties to said organized crime. <laughs> I personally think that's kind of like a perennial story that happens in every election. <laughs> you mean even the you know every we always have somebody. Uh, I, I'm kind of now th- scratching my head and wondering if we want to even talk about Hualien, for example, which is uh, uh, always interesting. I mean, you're, you're talking about Fu Quanqi's dynasty there, where he. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's been going on for how long? Uh, I think, uh, t- to be honest, though, after all this time, Taiwan has gotten better. <laughs> Taiwan has gotten much better uh, versus, let's say, 30 years ago, where, you know, um, it felt like every other, uh, po- uh, uh, you know, candidate was a, was a gangster. But nowadays, that's not the case. Now, now I meant felt like. I'll emphasize that before I get sued. And, of course, Sean, did the results come as a surprise to you of said local elections? Uh, I think a lot of people predicted that very early on. And the, the, refer- the article I referenced regarding uh, what Donovan wrote here that was amazing uh, was written notably, you know, well before the elections. I, there were tons of people that pointed out that it seemed likely that the KMT would win. But this is because there's so many factors. Uh, Donovan can go more deeper into that if he wishes to. But um, I don't think anybody predicted like a huge DPP win or anything like that. Um, nor did Nor did I think the elections went nearly as bad as anybody uh, uh, would expect for the DPP, as in like I, I don't think people were like oh yeah, it could have been so much better not really, we sort of expected this, uh, I, you know, give or take one or two elections, maybe maybe the Shinzu area or something, but not really But was it a blue wave, as the KMT were calling it on election day? Uh, in my opinion 
I, I because I expected this to happen, I didn't feel like it was massive. However, it, I do think that compared to like you know uh, 2018 or in the past, yeah, I mean they did win a lot. But again, because it was so expected, I, I personally was not really that phased uh, or, or upset. I also noticed that in the past, at least it feels like to me, uh, when the DPP lost elections, like major ones, like back in 2018, there was a lot more infighting than there is now, in my opinion. Um, you know, corruption in Tainan and stuff being a, a, a with Lin Feifang, you know, speaking out about, about that, that is like par for the course. Not really surprised. Uh, Lin Feifang doesn't like certain people. I get it. And and that's that's quite normal. I mean, uh, we the DPP ha- is held to a higher standard when it comes to corruption or and so forth. And so as a party, yeah, it is good for them to talk about these things and to shed that uh, because you know the DPP is a party of a lot of allegiances, you know, as opposed to a sort of hierarchy. And that's that's fun. And of course, it resulted in President Tsai Ing-wen stepping down as DPP chair. And now there's going to be a new chairpersonship election in January. Who's going to win then? Uh, <laughs> you know what? Again, Donovan's the best guy here to do that kind of speculation. Uh, personally, I feel that uh, this is completely normal. That every time you know the DPP loses, you're going to have a change in in, in uh, chairmanship, and and that's the same for the KMT as well. So, yeah, but tons of speculation uh, about different factions. And so, yeah. Donovan, what was your top political story of the year? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely the elections, um, although Sean is way too modest. Uh, he, he's super knowledgeable, and everything he said was uh, completely spot on. Um, there, are, there are a few things that I think, that, that to add to what Sean was saying, um, there are a few stories that, that I've been following which I, I find really kind of interesting about the elections. Um, one, of course, is the poll plagiarism thing. Um, and that, of course, you know, it felled the DPP in Taoyuan, probably in Shinju, and probably to a certain degree, it damaged them also in Taipei and Geelong. Um, so the at the top level, executive level, uh, you know, you know, for the county commissioners and mayors, um, it really damaged the DPP in the north, and so. The headline was, of course, that the DPP did worse. It was their worst ever result. I mean, they've never had less than six um, county or uh, city executives, and this time they got five. And a lot of it was they shot themselves in their, in their own foot. Um, the, the whole, uh, you know, resist China, uh, protect Taiwan thing was ill-advised as a campaign slogan as well, that, that kind of compounded the problem, because most people realized that they were campaigning on something that is, makes sense, you know, that the that slogan makes a lot of sense if you're a, a legislator or you're a president, in that you will be, if, if, if for example, you're the president, that, that slogan kind of gives you an idea of the attitude that you're going to use when choosing your cabinet, or when you, you know, or if, for example, you're a legislator and you're voting on, uh, you know, uh, national security issues, that makes a lot of sense. But when you're voting for your local city or county councilor, or mayor or county commissioner, you're basically voting for somebody who's going to be dealing with sewage budgets and things like that. And the DPP really dropped the ball. They could have actually given that slogan 
some relevance in that local governments manage things like air raid shelters and things like that. They could have added a plank on their, you know, along their, along with their pet-friendly city platforms, you know, uh, and infrastructure and all of that. They could have added one, which talked, which could have talked about how they would harden or prepare their city or county for, you know, for the worst to happen which they do for typhoons and earthquakes, and those are sometimes campaign issues. But the DPP just completely dropped the ball here. They ran on this whole, you know, resist China, protect Taiwan slogan. But when you're electing somebody who's only going to be dealing with sewage systems and you don't provide as part of your platform something that's relevant to that slogan. Like, for example, you have air raid shelters that are basically storage rooms and things like that, you know, or hardening local infrastructure, or coordinating between police, emergency rescue, fire departments, and the local community on how to, prepare, you know, how to coordinate if an invasion actually happened, for example. They could have actually included that as a campaign uh, platform. They didn't. Um, now, that being said, by the way, the DVP actually did slightly better uh, in some ways than, you know, than they have in the past. They, they're, if you actually, I went back and I looked, and in using my Formosa polls as a, as a reference, the last, after the last election, 2018, um, just after the election, and then comparing it this time, the DPP actually is far more popular post this election in the My Formosa poll than it was after the 2018 poll. And of course, you know, in the 13 months between uh, the 2018 local elections and the national elections, the DPP went on to win a landslide. Now, a lot of that had to do with the particular character of Hang Guoyu, but uh, what's interesting is that the DPP's popularity and the president's popularity coming out of this local election were actually pretty high. Uh, even though people didn't vote for them, it seemed to be the combination of the plagiarism issue and to provide some sort of check on the DPP's national-level power. So, you know, I don't think the DPP should be or is is badly damaged as the headlines make it look like. They they actually came out pretty good, relatively speaking. They're still behind uh, the KMT by a, lo- a, a large margin, but they increased the numbers of city and county councillors that they won. Um, as I mentioned, their popularity in the polls is a bit higher than than previous uh, than after the after the 2018 local elections, and they actually managed to finally get four uh, city and county uh, council ch- um, speaker positions through some interesting maneuvers, and and uh, it was very shady, as Sean elected, uh, noted uh, in Tainan. But in Geelong, they you know they made alliances, for example, with the People's First Party. Um, and so they're, they're gaining in strength finally at the, the real grassroots local level where the KMT is long dominated. So there's, there was actually some positive signs for the, for the DPP there. On the KMT side, I think what was quite remarkable is the turnaround of 
Jews Fortunes, the KMT chair, who earlier in the year, multiple times after losing a string of elections and referendum votes, he was looking like dead meat. Um, people were calling for his, uh, his resignation left, right, and center, uh, you know, and multiple times. And now he's looking pretty, basically. He's come out of the election looking strong within the party. Um, he's now being widely talked about as a potential presidential candidate, even though in polls with the general public, he does not do well at all. Uh, Hoyoyi is way ahead of him on that front. But within the party, he's looking quite strong. So, you know, I think that was quite a remarkable turnaround on his part, and he's now in a much stronger position as party chair. So I think those are some of the things that jump out at me about the, the, the local election. Right, moving on now. Sean, your foreign affairs story of 2022. Uh, can it be anything other than the Pelosi visit? <laughs> it, could be, it could be anything you want, mate. <laughs> uh, maybe we could talk about pandas instead, but uh, I do think the Pelosi visit is definitely going to be the most uh, important story of the Taiwan political foreign affairs story. The reason is simple. Um, ever since uh, Pelosi visited, uh, it solidified and made more public the visit visits that have been happening. Uh, keep in mind that there were a lot of high-level visits from the EU and other countries prior to Pelosi's visit, but she made it the standard, the status quo in a way. Like, she made it uh, uh, completely okay. So, even right, uh, so ever since then, basically every two, two weeks, every week, you hear about somebody coming to Taiwan, doesn't barely even make the news anymore, and China's reaction initially, there was a lot of fear-mongering and a lot of noise and hubbub, but Mm, you know, China just flies more jets, but nothing really actually happens, nothing tangible. So I do feel that is the most important Taiwan foreign affairs story that prior to 2022, it feels like, uh, uh, you know, th there was uh, there was some consternation about, you know, how important Taiwan was and, and whether or not you could really visit Taiwan and, and, you know, what the repercussions are. But nowadays it's like, okay, if you have assets in China, it might get frozen or you might not be allowed to visit uh uh, you know, uh, you know, stand alongside some CCP officials, but for many governments around the world, it's rather easy. You just send some to Taiwan and you send others to China, and that is basically the new. I wouldn't say the new status quo, but it's solidified that to becoming uh, the new norm. And I, yeah. And if she hadn't come, Sean, do you think we'd be where we are now, or do you think? We would be where we are now, whether she'd come or not. <laughs> that, that's a good question. Um, if it wasn't Pelosi, I believe it would have been somebody else. However, Pelosi has long been a Taiwan ally for a long time. Uh, she's also been, not been a good friend of uh, the CCP. Uh, famously, during the Clinton administration or that era, she was against most favored nation status for China. And also, uh, importantly, she was one of the very few people that insisted that tra U.S. trade with China should be tied with human rights, uh, you know, especially you know, particularly China's level of human rights. Um, so I do feel that you know uh, it is good timing. Uh, she was originally supposed to visit earlier, um, you know, but uh, she caught COVID. 
and couldn't visit. China didn't make much noise then, but it tried to, to capitalize on the political situation. Uh, in hindsight, do I think it really matters? Uh, 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 you know, in terms of does it really hurt Taiwan that she visited? Uh, I think all those naysayers personally were proven wrong since uh, now all these uh, high-level visits to Taiwan is normal, and people or nations aren't as uh, ashamed. Uh, there were quite a few visits from uh, congressional U.S. leaders since. But I've noticed it didn't make the news as much anymore since Pelosi's visit because it's been normalized. So to me, that that I think is the most uh, uh, important story, coupled with the fact that the global realization that Taiwan needs to be defended. It put it onto the front page, on the line. You know, we stopped beating around the bush on that one. So I do like it. And Donovan, your favorite, your top, your best, your most um, invigorating foreign affairs story vis-a-vis Taiwan for 2022. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree with Sean. Um, I, you know, it's it's the the same story, um, and everything that Sean said is ab- absolutely correct about how it really did in kind of in, invigorate and push forward a lot more international visits. But I'll take a slightly different uh, uh, approach to to add to what Sean was saying, and that is that China really decided to change the status quo in the Taiwan Strait. Now, a few weeks before, uh, about a, actually it was a month, maybe a month and a half prior to her arrival, um, the, the PRC announced, you know, said that basically all of the Taiwan Strait is their territorial waters. And at the time, I wrote about the death of the Davis Line, which is the, the median line in the Taiwan Strait. And I got some blowback from that, um, but I said that it basically, you know, it, but in the article I pointed out that China was basically saying that the median line in the Taiwan Strait, where, which had been established basically, it was a tacit agreement between the U.S., Taiwan, and China established in the, in the 50s, that essentially no planes from either side or ships cross that median line through the Taiwan Strait. Uh, otherwise, that upsets the status quo. And they started doing that uh, a little bit more before the um, before Pelosi's visit. And so I said that the Davis line was was basically dead. Now, what happened during the Pelosi visit? The thing was, is that. China was using the Pelosi visit as an excuse. All those military exercises that they they executed were way too complicated and complex to have been planned on the timeline from when she announced she was coming and to when she actually did come. So they were essentially using that visit as a pretext. So it was not... It was something that they were going to do anyway, whether whether it was Pelosi or some other excuse, they were going to do it. And so those large-scale exercises, which were intended to be very intimidating, and they were live-fire exercises, they were surrounding Taiwan, they totally trashed the Davis line during that, they shot missiles, uh, admittedly in, you know, uh, it, you know, above the atmosphere, so technically it wasn't in Taiwan's airspace, but it, they shot missiles over Taiwan and then they landed in 
uh, Japan's uh, economic zone, not their, you know, not their territorial waters, but their economic zone. And they were very intentionally done, presumably to rattle the international community, which it they did. Um, although personally, I think there was a lot. Of, a lot of it had to do with signaling toward internal political factions uh, within China. I think that was the primary motive. But secondarily, of course, the I, you know it it rattled Taiwan and rattled the international community, and. You know, as Sean noted, it really kind of boosted support for Taiwan, got Taiwan on, on, on the headlines. And, of course, you know, the U.S. has now upped their commitments to help Taiwan defend itself. And, uh, you know, Taiwan has been ramping up its efforts as well on this end. So, well, I think it was a domestic issue within China as the primary motive on their side. Um, you know, I, I really think it's, it's made it harder for China in the long run to actually attack Taiwan. So, the, you know, they, they ended up doing themselves some damage. But, they, you know, they had the 20th Party Congress coming up. So, um, And the CCP, of course, is all about power internally within China. So, you know, I'm sure that the logic made sense to Xi Jinping and those in power there. And Donovan, what was your top social or society story of the year? Because I know you're just into social and society issues. Yeah, yeah, I'm super social, aren't I? Um, well, <laughs> this actually dovetails nicely with with uh, the last topic. Is I think that when Tai announced that they're going to increase conscription to one year, uh, I think that's the big society story. Um, you know, it was either that or easing the pandemic restrictions. So you know, you kind of go with either one. With the conscription and you know ex- being extended to one year, I think that's a that's a major societal shift. Although it's not going to take place until 2024, but taking you know uh, young men's lives from four months of their life to one year is obviously consequential. Um, and, you know, it means that there's going to be a whole lot more Dear John letters to those poor young men. But, of course, Taiwan really needs to up its game uh, as far as preparing for a potential uh, attack from China. On lifting the COVID restrictions, you know, Taiwan followed, like China, a zero COVID policy. And it, but unlike China, which is just lifted their so-called dynamic zero COVID, Taiwan waited until the population was 80% vaccinated, made sure that they had all of the medical capacity in the hospitals, made sure they had all the medicines needed, and then lifted zero COVID, whereas China had, you know, inferior vaccines for the population that was vaccinated, had low vaccination levels, um, among elderly, and they did not prepare their hospitals, prepare medicines, and of course, that's a humanitarian disaster, and I really, it's, it's heartbreaking what's happening in China right now. But it really kind of shows that Taiwan's approach, as much as I have a million and one complaints about the CEC's handling of the pandemic, 
but it really does kind of highlight that they, they, they got the basics correct. They, you know, were prudent, planned carefully, and executed uh, when they lifted the zero COVID. And that, I think, you know, really, and that's really highlighted by the way China's handling it now. So, Sean, conscription or COVID there is your top social story of the year. <laughs> I, I personally think that these two are, are definitely like very important social uh, society stories. Um, but uh, I also feel that they have been ongoing for some time at the, uh, you know, uh, you know, it was only inevitable that Taiwan would uh, start to open up. However, with China's uh, recent <laughs> explosion in COVID cases and, uh, you know, we might see ourselves closing our borders or, or adding more restrictions to visits from China, which is being mulled. Uh, I do know that in a few days we're going to do more testing and what have you, but I expect that if if the numbers coming out of China, well, we don't have numbers coming out of China, that's the problem, that we might actually take more stricter measures. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, I think that's an after effect with, uh, you know, China overreacting and actually already building up before the 20th Party Congress where they had you know, where a lot of Taiwan society does believe that, yeah, it's time for us to really build up our, um, you know, to extend our conscription. I want to note about that aspect, though, in South Korea, South Korea, they have a draft that lasts, depending on which branch of the military you join, uh, between 18 months and 21 months of memory serves. So we doing it to 12 months is, you know, a good measure. But however, and, and well supported by most of society. But there's one problem that I feel is missing. Uh, how effective are we going to make that those 12 months? If they're going to be eating instant noodles and their hardest job is to sweep floors and things like that, and they don't get enough uh, training in tactics or strategy or other th- aspects or logistics even, then it, it's just a waste of a year. So that's one thing that I do think Taiwan needs to fix. If I'm going to say other stories that might be related... Um, there, there are actually so many important societal stories this year. You but, got one show, one, but only I get one. one. So I'm going to choose one that's going to be different from Donovan's two because his <laughs> his are just too good. Okay, so what I'm going to take is right now I'm going to take the one about how I think the social war, our social media wars, and propaganda has I think exploded in 2022. Uh, I've seen so much historical revision, revisionism. I've seen a lot of intensity in uh, Taiwan social media influence operations by China. It's become a glo- more of a global topic. Uh, you know, it's come to the point where um, you know we're talking about how China has evolved its uh, tactics against uh, Taiwan. One thing you should notice uh, is that a lot of young people in Taiwan now use Xiao Hongsu, which is Little Red Book. It's an app. It's like the TikTok, sort of like TikTok, where there's a lot of videos and stuff. And most people will say, okay, it's a little innocuous, right? Um, After all, you know, it's not exactly political stories that young Taiwanese students go for. Maybe they might go there to check um, college entry into the United States or whether you should use uh, how to apply to Western schools or what experiences might you have if you study abroad. But one thing I notice is that in some of these videos, they might add a little thing that might say uh, to, to, to make the West look worse, 
right? Like, for instance, they might say, oh, you know, uh, the U.S. handling of COVID is something you should mention. The U.S. completely botched COVID in the United States, but they don't mention something like the foremost vaccines uh, around the world come from the U.S. as well. And uh, they don't mention that, you know, that COVID came out of uh, 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 China's mishandling and making it into a global pandemic. They don't talk about things like that. They might say, oh, okay, so one major problem you'll, you'll face in the U.S. is rampant racism. People might attack you, you know, blah, blah, blah. So they even insert these little lines to sort of, you know, chip away at U.S. allies or, or Japan or something like, you know, like U.S., uh, Taiwan's allies like Japan or the U.S. And I feel that it's ubiquitous. Like our filtering of social media and news is something that we need to fix. And I think it's already hit uh, a sort of uh, mainstream problem. And that, I think, is an important societal issue. I think in 2022, we'll look back to this year and we might say that, yeah, this is this is the year where China evolved. They no longer are using just outright fake news. They're using real news minus some context in order to shape the narrative, chipping it away slowly. Because they know if they come out with a video that says like, you know, oh, you know, uh, Taiwan bad, China good, U.S. bad, Japan bad, it wouldn't work. And I've seen a lot of this uh, evolving in um, um, their media. So I know it's a little abstract, but that would be, I think, my most important societal story. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week. And, of course, we've just had some doom and gloom stories there. But now we'll move on to Donovan. And what was your feel-good story from Taiwan of 2022? Well, it is slightly doom and gloom, actually. Um, but it's Zheng uh, Shengguang, the uh, Taiwanese volunteer uh, who died in, you know, who died in Ukraine. Um, but I, I really do feel like you know he's a heroic figure. Um, he was in the in Taiwan's military for um, I believe it's four years, um, and then he volunteered for Ukraine. Um, and you know, as and I think you know what I what I thought what I thought was kind of interesting, for example, is. You know, it, there was an interview with a Ukrainian parliamentarian, uh, Inna Sovson, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, uh, said that she saw Zung as a Ukrainian soldier, not because the circumstances turned out that way, but because he chose it. And I feel like he was a hero for freedom, for, you know, as Sovson said, Zung had a, du- a sense of duty for freedom. For four years, he prepared to defend his motherland from Chinese invaders, but he went to defend a foreign country which faced the same threat as his. This is a devotion to one's work and one's ideals. We will not forget his courage and his sacrifice. His death will not be be in vain. Ukraine will win, and when Taiwan needs support, I think Ukrainians will come as Tsung came to help in a time of need. And I really feel like, you know, he sort of shows the spirit of resistance to totalitarianism and stood up for not just Taiwan, but for Ukraine and for the people there. And, you know, it's it's a definite shame that, that he passed away. 
but I think we can draw inspiration from him and his spirit. And Sean, did you have a more feel-good story than rather one that has a bit of a sad bit? Oh, you mean talking about martyrs and how the Ukraine? Uh, I, I, do, I wouldn't even say it's like the, the the situation in Ukraine has only emphasized the need for Taiwan to be defended and is now making that like global headlines. Uh, personally, yeah, in a way that could be feel-good too. But I'm going to choose something else, right? Uh, it's sort of two stories. One is uh, Taiwan again is the international number two for international. This is for expats that talk about nations that they would love to go to. Taiwan usually ranks number number one or two. It's good to see that Taiwan is there again, which means that expats feel that Taiwan is a great place to live in for quality of life and other things. Definitely not the paycheck, but definitely not the paycheck, but definitely something uh, um, you know to to feel good about. Also, also Taiwan ranks 26th happiest country in the world and the top in East Asia. Uh, you know they had over a hundred. 46 countries ranked in the 2022 World Happiness Report, which was released by the UN back in March. And it said that Taiwan had great freedom, uh, you know, to make life choices, healthy life expectancy, social support, GDP per capita. In fact, it's predicted that sometime in the next year, Taiwan's GDP per capita post parity will surpass even that of Japan. Um, you know, dystopia, conceptions of corruption. So, you know, Taiwan arrived all the other Asia, many other Asian countries, including Singapore, Japan, South Korea, Thailand. Now, you know, of course, people are going to ask about China because that's naturally who we compete with. And China is ranked 72nd place. So, you know, compared to, you know, other many, most other Asian nations, Taiwan has been doing bunkers good. So that is my, I think, uh, most important feel-good story, literally. This was a UN report. This was but, a hang UN on, report. Hang on. So the UN can say that they have this data, but when it comes to more serious things, the UN has no data about Taiwan because Taiwan's not in the UN. Uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things about the United Nations, right? It's 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 funny because you, you go check out, you know, you go visit the United Nations, and most Taiwanese can't even get enter because they they have a Taiwanese passport. But if you can get in, you'll notice that when they talk about history, who founded the UN, they they might mention, yeah, uh, China did. But then you'll see a PRC flag, and you'll know PRC wasn't even, anyway. That's life, right? For now, well, well, but anyway. At least a lot of the expat listeners will know that uh, Taiwan is doing pretty good. Uh, you know, it's a good place to be right now. Right, and Donovan, let's move on to the most inane or infuriating stories of 2022. Well, of course, you know, being me, I went with the infuriating, and of course, it's local politics. Um, and it's the Zhongdongjin story uh, in Miaoli. Um, so, this guy. He was the speaker of the county council uh, in the KMT, and he was KMT. And Eric Jew, in one possibly his biggest misstep of of the local election cycle, where you know generally he came out smelling like roses, this was one of his big missteps. Um, and strategically, what he did was is he and Tsai Ing-wen did the same thing, by the way. Um, both parties basically you know, skipped the normal primary process for most of the races for the top executives in favor of a top-down choosing of the candidate. And in Miao Li, uh, Eric Ju and the election committee in the KMT 
they chose a guy to run to represent the party for county commissioner Miali, who not only was he not informed, he didn't want to run. He was totally uninterested. And so this left the KMT with some serious egg on their faces. Now, the guy who really wanted to run was Zhong Dongjin. And he... Uh, but the, the KMT thought he had a little bit of an unsavory rep- reputation and didn't want him to run. So they picked a, another guy to represent the KMT, but this guy decided to run anyway, refused to quit the party, and came out with a press conference where he said, I want to dispel the rumors uh, uh, that I'm a a murderer and a rapist. All I did was I stabbed a friend of mine and committed criminal adultery. (laughs) And that was how he launched his campaign. Then, you know, and he, started, and he was campaigning using a logo that looked, was basically the KMT logo, but with a whale jumping through it for some bizarre reason. And it turned out, over the course of the campaign, it turned out, yeah, he actually had served jail time for being involved in a murder. Um, and he served jail time under a different, he, under a different name, apparently he changed his name. Um, and then all these allegations, and he was also had been convicted of, of some crimes that are, that are normally associated with organized crime. Um, and then he, you know, all these other allegations came out, which are not proven, I should state that clearly, uh, but of being involved in all kinds of other shady things more recently, uh, you know, as in, you know, it your property flipping and all kinds of just typically shady stuff. Um, and he went out, romped to victory, beating the DPP, uh, KMT, and NPP candidates, and romped to victory. And now uh, there are allegations of vote buying by some of the people who worked on his campaign. Uh, locally, that they were engaged in vote buying, and so his election might be annulled. But this whole thing just, you know, as Sean earlier alluded to, you know, obviously Taiwan's politics has gotten a lot better over the years, but years ago it was very gangster heavy. But there are these pockets, uh, you know, Sean noted Hualien has a bit of a whiff of that there, to put it mildly. Um, and Miao Li, it's these these holdouts uh, that still have this kind of strong whiff of old school 1990s style uh, politics. And so this is, this is the one I found the most infuriating uh, story. Of course, you know Brian Sung famously did that his uh, show. He had that segment on his show about Miao Li Guo or the Miaoli Kingdom as if, as if it's a separate entity on its own. Um, and in a lot of ways, yeah, Miaoli is, it's the dream of the 90s, lives on uh, in, in Miaoli.
And Sean, your most inane or infuriating story of uh, 2022. That would be Donovan's story would been would have been my most infuriating story. So I'm going to choose inane. Um, the inane one I'm going to choose is the traffic story about Taiwan being a living hell. Uh, <laughs> You know, you know, it's a tourism problem. I, I saw there was a lot of uh, criticism regarding that. You know, the U.S. State Department warns, you know, exercise caution when crossing streets because many drivers do not respect the pedestrians right away. And that is true. And Taiwan has had some immediate responses to that, including potentially raising uh, fines here and there, or at least the, the, the ceiling for fines. Uh, Taiwan is infamously known for having very petty fines. Uh, although, of course, Taiwan's legal system is a bit complicated uh, from the onset, you might assume that, ah, okay, so the, this one fine doesn't include other uh, uh, fines that could be added upon to that. That said, I did follow this story for a long time. The reason I think it's a little inane is because um, Taiwan is a scooter nation. And when you have a lot of two wheels sharing the same road as, you know, four wheeled vehicles, you tend to have a lot of traffic deaths. But something that's rather fascinating is that Taiwan's traffic deaths are actually roughly on par with the United States. Now, there's going to be controversy on this because some might say, you know, how the deaths are calculated, so on and so forth may be different. And yes. However, I've been following this story for a long time, for years now. And there, again, persisted a lot of people saying, oh, yes, Taiwan is the worst in Asia in terms of traffic deaths, which isn't the case. I've tracked this story for years. It actually is some originates from a few people confusing that with Thailand. <laughs> Thailand, which by far has the worst. And Vietnam also has really bad, too. Basically, the long list of traffic deaths are all basically scooter nations or the infrastructure is really bad. Taiwan's actually one of the best scooter nations in the world. So um, yeah, uh, uh, to me, that's kind of inane because again, we get the story where Taiwan just looks really bad. Uh, yes, Taiwan does need to improve upon that. I mean, yes, there uh, you go to a lot of rural areas, there's not enough sidewalks, there's too many scooters. Uh, I feel that's being addressed in Taipei most well in all of Taiwan that I've seen or, or best in Taiwan as I've seen. Uh, but, you know, if we talk about how it was being addressed, it's kind of silly. How we're talking about? Well, the co-administration, well, uh, previously what they did was simply draw less scooter boxes. So, <laughs> you know, it made it less convenient to come into the city. But that said, um, yeah, to me, that is the most inane uh, tiring story that I've heard all year. Well, there we go. And that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan this week. And I'm glad to see that neither of my guests picked the inane story that I would have chosen, that being the story of Barbie Shu and her former Chinese husband, Wang Xiaofei, and a mattress. <laughs> oh, no. And if you don't know about it, you can go look it up. Anyway, today I've been joined in the studio by Sean Su. It's great to be back again. And from Taijong by Donovan Smith. <laughs> great to be back. Sorry about all the doom and gloom. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.